This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Darshan Johan. PRN 2023 took place last Saturday. The coalition comprising Pakatan Harapan and Barisan National retained Penang, Selangor and Negeri Sembilan, while Perikatan National retained Kedah, Kelantan and Terengganu. So, while the big picture remains status quo, a closer look tells us that Perikatan National did make gains. So, joining me today to unpack the results of the recent state elections is Francis Hutchinson. He's a senior fellow at the Regional Economic Studies Programme and coordinator of the Malaysian Studies Programme at ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. Welcome to the show, Francis. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start with an overview, Francis. What is your read on the result of the election? What does it signal? So I think broadly you can say that this is, seems to be part of a broader trend of uh, the growth of Perikata Nacional at the expense of Pakatan Harapan and to a greater extent at the expense of Barisan Nacional. Um, and so when we look at G15 and then we look at the results of the state elections now, I think we can see, you know, a kind of broad mapping of the same results, but with a further progression towards Perikata Nacional. Um, Amno got wiped out in a big way, similar to G15. Out of the 108 seats contested um, in the six states altogether, they only won 19 seats. What does this tell you? Okay, so I think we can, uh, I guess, look at a couple of things. The, fir- mm-hmm. the first thing is of these 19 seats, the overwhelming majority of them are in just one state. This is Negri Sambila, right? So really, we're only talking about a handful of seats anywhere else in the country. So broadly, I mean, I think this is a continuation of a trend that we have been seen on, seeing in operation since 2008. Right. So broadly, this is like a structural move away from Barisan Nacional. The thing is, from two, or 2008, 2013, this was a movement away from uh, parties like MCA, MIC, and Geraka. The key is that in 2018, of course, we see the real movement away from UMNO. Um, and this is a continuation of this. So... Number one, we see this movement away. And then two, we kind of see, if you will, UMNO becoming more of a regional party, right? right? So where is it strong? It's strong in Malacca. It's strong in Johor. It's strong in Negri Sambila and parts of Baha, right? This, and then if you will, we can kind of see a more, and we have seen a regional uh, focus of, of particularly past. But uh, it's now expanding and spreading from the north outwards, right? It's going down into northern Pahang. Of course, it's expanded from Kedah and Kelantan into Kedah as well. Now, you mentioned something interesting that it's becoming a regional party, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the label that people used to put on, on the likes of PAS. You know, they are just a regional Kelantan Trangano party. Now they, are, they have grown in strength. Um, AMNO is shrinking. AMNO's um, power is shrinking. Um, should AMNO reform and rebuild itself to ensure um, its survivability? And you mentioned something interesting, right? Um, again, that, that whole regional aspect, its strength in Negeri Sembilan, Melaka and Johor. 
So when AMLO is thinking about its survival, should it rebuild itself with leaders from this region? That means you drop the likes of Zahid and you go with the likes and you go with the likes of the top mats, the Azalinas. Um, you know, perhaps some some are talking on social media about bringing back the likes of Kairi Jamaluddin. You see, these names that I'm talking about are from that region that you just mentioned, right? That the, the Negeri Sembilan, the Johor, the Melaka. Um, how do you see it? So I guess. We, I'd say several things. So the mm-hmm. first, I think the biggest thing, and this is something that you know I've been thinking and I've been saying for a while and many people have as well, is that really what is very surprising is that, of course, in 2018, we have Arisa Nacional, AMLO, losing power for the first time. And we did not see a really intense process of soul searching. Mm-hmm. Why did we lose? Uh, and uh, you know, given why we lost, what are we going to do about it? Uh, we haven't seen this. So, of course, we have the transition from uh, Najib to Zahid. Uh, of course, yes, to be fair, there was the election, the party election in 20, 2018. But we can also have a discussion about the way that you know UMNO is structured and, if you will, the kind of way that power works that tends to... Uh, really reward the incumbents, right? So if you are a no party president, this is due to centralization moves enacted by uh, Tunku Abdul Rahman, number one, and number two, Mahathir, right? So when you are a no party president, really, you have a lot of power. And if you want to stay on, it is exceptionally difficult to get you out. So this window has passed, but the country has moved on. And mm-hmm. what this has done is it has accentuated further this pressure on UMNO because it is not doing well. So then you are beginning to have a lot of people that are legitimately saying, look, we need to discuss this. We need to look at this. What can we do? And this power structure is unchanged. And then what happens is that these people are getting purged. So all or many of the very nice people that you've mentioned that are very professional or vain, so forth, have been purged. So yes, we can see that it is being reduced to uh, a foothold or a part of the country where it is strong. But unless you deal with these governance issues, you're going to have the same problem. So you can have another generation of people from the South that speak very well, that are very charismatic, and then they're going to come up against this kind of power structure, and then most likely they're going to be purged again. So uh, I think unless there is a, an opening up, you know, we know that there was the decision a while ago to not have uh, party elections. Actually, my colleague uh, James Chai uh, has released a very nice uh, a perspective, a report that looks at many of the legislative or legal changes enacted by Zahid uh, in Omno and what this means, right? And really what this means is it's very, very difficult to lead any type of organic change in, in power at the top. Now, moving on from AMNO to Pakatan Harapan, Pakatan Harapan, broadly speaking, managed to hold on to their seats, um, their states, especially they hold, uh, they held on to three. They held on to most of their seats. DAP um, held on to everything except one. They they lost um, one out of the, all the seats they contested in. PKR did lose some ground to Perikata National, um, especially in areas that are more Malay heavy and uh, the seats that are more Malay heavy. Um, what is your read on how Pakatan Harapan performed um, in the state elections? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're correct. So when we look uh, in the last years, uh, actually, probably you can go back to 2013, uh, really, we can see that uh, DAP contests very well, right? very, very consistent performance. Even in this one, it did better in passing in quantitative terms, right? right? How many seats did it contest in? How many did it win? Mm -hmm. Right. So it has a real uh, a foothold in in um, urban mixed areas. Now, the point is that when we look at the way that the country's political structure works, you have what is called malapportionment, right? So you have a lot of Malay majority constituencies with fewer people, right? There are about 117 uh, seats in Peninsula that are Malay majority. Mm -hmm. So this is very, very fertile electoral terrain, right? So yes, you can win all the urban seats, all the mixed seats, but that's not enough to get you in a position where then you can go to Sabah and Sarawak and say, you know, let's form a coalition. So really, right. you need to make incursions into these 117 seats. Now, PKR is has one foot in each, right? It has one foot in urban mixed areas, and it has another foothold in Malay majority areas. But, and actually, we can also say to a certain extent, Amana as well. But the thing of for Pakatan Harapan as a whole is that neither PKR nor Amana is that successful at moving in to these types of seats. So that is why when we go to 2018, really having Bursatu on board and senior Malay leaders like Mahathir, like Mohidin was so fundamental because it enabled the coalition to then get the numbers because then it could tap into this very, very important electoral part of the country. So what we're beginning to see here is this erosion, further erosion, particularly for PKR. And again, as we discussed, I spent time in, in Penang. You can see this in the type of seats that um, PKR won and the type of seats it lost. So it did well in places like Machangkubuk, Tambun, which are again mixed. They have some urban areas, but they're mixed seats. And it didn't do well in uh, Permatanta, which is, of course, the heartland of Anwar Ibrahim. Rural Isa was there. There are two seats that they ran in there, and they lost both. So this speaks to this attrition and the fact that, yes, uh, they really need to look at this. And this is kind of the structural issue. How can Pakatan Harapan go beyond? So... Since taking office, um, one of the strategies um, deployed by the Madani government is to seemingly pander to the ethno-religious uh, bloc in hopes of winning support from the conservative Malay heartland. Now, this is a move that has repeatedly angered the vocal and progressive base of Harapan. This so-called strategy clearly did not work, at least electorally, as the Harapan-BN combo um, failed to make inroads in the Malay heartland. What should Anwar and his government do next? Because there is no doubt that Malaysia is polarised, but should the government continue pandering to the right wing? So I think this actually speaks to the same issue that we're talking about, right? So what can Pakatan Harapan do to kind of go beyond its traditional support base? So what it has been doing through increasing the budget for Jakim, what it's been doing when it took a stand on the use of the word uh, Allah by non-Muslims in the peninsula, when it also 
you know, has been talking about whether uh, Malaysia's federal system or system of government is secular or not. All of these things, yes, are very much signaling to the Malay base. But um, I think because of, I'd say, a number of issues. Number one, um, Anwar's, uh, shall we say, political career that has uh, seen positions change over time. This leads many people for it, you know, to question to what extent he would be, uh, you know, steadfast in promoting Malay interests. And then, of course, the other one that many people talk about is, you know, the role of the DAP. And of course, Omno has demonized that party for many, many years. And of course, now this, of course, makes it very difficult to, uh, you know, uh, do what it's doing. So we have this kind of uh, long-standing political traditions uh, that I think affect the room for maneuver. So what can it try and do? So I'd say a couple of things, and, and to be fair, it is trying to do these things, but uh, with limited success. So the first one is really, you know, look at economic issues, look at cost of living. So uh, one of the things that I think they need to address is the perception, uh, and it is arguable, that, you know, Muhyiddin Yassin, when he was prime minister, was very proactive at rolling out, you know, economic measures to contain COVID. Now, I'd say we can say a couple of things. The first is a lot of this was allowing people to take out their own retirement savings rather than additional, uh, you know, fiscal injections. Right. And then the second thing is you cannot do this you know, endless, right? So at some point you do need to have a transition back to normality and you cannot continue doing this. And then I think deeper than this, uh, you know, is really trying to help the country attain, you know, high income status and higher levels of economic growth. Now, the problem is here, Malaysia cannot continue to grow at the level that people expect, right? So when you have a lower income base, you can grow at 7%, 8%, right? But as you get wealthier, really the, the level of growth begins to slow down. And already 3%, 4% is already very good. So that's one. The other thing is when you look at many of the reforms that you need, it's now no longer so easy. It's not taking people out of the countryside and putting them in factories. It is actually, you know, making sure that people are more productive, they work with higher technology, and they are in higher value-added parts of the production process. This is difficult to do. Now, we do have in the pipeline, we have a new industrial master plan. We have a midterm review of the 12th Malaysia plan. I've been studying Malaysia for 22 years now I've read a lot of these plans, and they are invariably well-written. They have very good people. I know some of them. I mean, you know some of them that write them. They're fantastic. The question is, what about the follow-up, right? So that's one. And the other thing is, and this is politically harder to sell, a lot of these things take a long time. Mm -hmm. So you want to climb the value chain. You want to move into a new economic sector. This takes five years, 10 years, 15. And in some cases, you're going to fail because technology goes a different way, right? So this... We need to look at, but it's difficult. The second thing is like reframing the debate. So are we always going to be talking about, you know, ethnicity? Are we always going to be talking about religion? Could we not talk about values and culture? And what about language? Like, you know, uh, Bahasa Malaysia is a fantastically rich, very, very rich language, right? 
very sophisticated at its high level, right? Can we not do something with this? Now, granted, he is trying to do this with Malaysia Madani. So there's lots of culture in there. There's lots of civilizational references. But I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to grasp what it is, what Madani is, right? It's it's difficult, right? It's it's a it's a big vision. How do you populate it? What does it mean? So it sounds good, but yeah. Absolutely. Right? So so what you're saying is be a genuine alternative instead of pandering to the ethno-religious groups. Yes. And so what we've seen to date, and, and actually, you know, I think uh, Anwar Ibrahim said it himself in that dialogue with the student, right, that asked him about affirmative action and all of that, right? And he ended that intervention by saying, please bear with us, right? Uh, the alternative is worse. Now, uh, this can work in the short term, but at some point people are going to say this is not the alternative, right? There is no alternative. You are giving us exactly what we don't want. Mm -hmm. So to your point, and this is difficult. I mean, this is something that Malaysia is consistently struggling with. How do you reframe it? How do you generate concepts, ideas, and values that appeal to everyone in a different way. How do you cut the cake different? On the show with me today is Francis Hutchinson from the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. We continue this discussion after the break only on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Francis Hutchinson, Senior Fellow of the Regional Economic Studies Program and Coordinator of the Malaysian Studies Program at ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. And he's helping me unpack the results of the 2023 state elections. Now, Francis, let's talk about Prikata National because um, I remember, you know, when we, you know, just go a, a short while back after the Lilanka Sheraton took place, when reconfigurations were happening, people were saying, you just wait, Perikata National, the next elections, you're gone. Bunkos. That was the that was the language that people were using, and it was that con people had that that sort of confidence that all the frogs, quote unquote, will be punished and so on and so forth. But Perikata National has gone from strength to strength. Um, it has continued to dominate the East Coast, um, just like GE15 now, again in the state elections. Not just dominate the East Coast, but they make gains everywhere else as well. What are they doing right, Francis? What have you um, found out from the ground? Sure. So I think the first that I think everybody knows is that there's a clear push factor, right? So when you have people that try and deconstruct the, the green wave, one of the key issues that they point out, and I think this is correct, is you can't just look at the attraction, you have to look at the rejection, right? So what is the rejection? So it is clearly a rejection in many parts of the country of UMNO. And as we discussed earlier, this is part also of a long-term trend away, right? So we had 61 years of very, very consistent rule, uh, but Underlying that, you had deep-seated societal changes. You had more urbanization. You have higher income status. Uh, all of the you have different patterns of media consumption, right? So all of these things have been undercutting the very, very strong position that uh, Barisan Nasional had. But up until 2018, this was very much focused on smaller parties like MIC, MCA, and Garaka. So 2018 is the structural shift away from UMNO. And as we've discussed, the whole issue of, you know, concentration of 
power, old guard, and I would say also old style of politics, right? And the whole governance issues associated with senior leaders and the court cluster and all of that is part, a very, very key part of the push factor. Now, what is some of the pull factors? So the first is, for better or worse, whether it is true or not, uh, Pericata Nacional has been able to latch on to the anti-corruption bandwagon. And they what they've been saying is, you know, when we were in power, we were very, very uh, uh, consistent, you know, in the legal proceedings against members in the court cluster. We didn't let them out. And these things, you know, went their course. And in comparison, of course, we are clean. Now, this has been uh, mitigated to a certain extent or count. There's been a countermeasure in terms of uh, you know, court cases of senior leaders in Pericata Nacional. But for many people, this is seen as being politically motivated and not necessarily legitimate. So this is one, the anti-corruption kind of uh, aspect. The second is, as we've discussed as well, the good memories of the Moyedin Yassin period, that you know he was seen to be very active, uh, rolling out countermeasures. And when you look at opinion polls consistently, he is the most popular senior Malay political figure. Um, I'd say another couple of things, we have uh, also more appealing figures or new figures, right? right? So of course, there are in the background some of the senior figures that we know in the past, like Hadi Awang and so forth. But now what we're beginning to see is a generational change and the emergence of newer figures. So everyone, of course, is talking about uh, Sanusi, the MB from Pida, we also have Ahmad Samsuri from Pangano on the other. And if you like, they're different people. You, you, if you like your kind of more populist kind of vocal figure, you have uh, Sanusi. If you kind of like your more technocratic professional figure, you have, um, you know, Samsuri. So you have these types of figures that are uh, emerging, that are appealing. Another thing that they are quite good at is um, a more adept use of social media and more specifically the TikTok game, right? So the older generation is, of course, more on Facebook. Then we have Twitter, but it's really TikTok. And I think uh, when you look at G15 as well as more recently, uh, you know, G15, you know, you have Wade and Yasin dancing, swiping. Uh, with uh, more recently, you have Sanusi raising his hand and kind of parodying and referencing Abraham Ibrahim mm-hmm. and also opposing him. These things, I think, are very uh, captivating. And certainly, we know for sure both Pakatan Harapan and Barisan Nacional, and I've spoken to key, key figures in BN that themselves admit they were slow with this. They actually delivered or developed a lot of content for Facebook and then tried to upload it onto TikTok, and it doesn't work as well. You actually need to specifically generate content for TikTok. Now, so I think this is something else. Yes. I want to ask, you know, it, it it's one thing um, that Perikata National or PAS grows from strength to strength in the East Coast in areas where the entire state is, you know, we are dealing with, let's say, 97, 98% Malay population and, and so on and so forth. 
how are they making gains in Selangor and Penang? You were on the ground in Penang as well for for quite some time. Um, mm-hmm. What is it that they're doing right there? And what is it that the either DAP Pakatan Harapan government in Penang or the the you know PKR um, DAP government PH uh, Harapan government in Selangor? What haven't they do, uh, been doing enough to politicize people in Selangor and Penang in a certain way? Why is the pushback or the green wave, if some people want to call it a green wave, um, some people you know, may frame it differently, but why is it happening even in sl- places like Selangor and Penang? So I think that uh, we have a regionally differentiated campaign. So if you go somewhere like Kelantan, you go somewhere like Trengganu, it is very much a pass-led campaign. So using the traditional machinery, the traditional discourse. And I think when you get to different parts of the country, then it is either more Bursatu-led or where I was in in Penang, more Gerakan-led. So the messaging is different. Even the types of people that they put in front is different. The language that they use is different. So, for example, in Penang, uh, in particularly the the island, so I, I went to the sorry I went to the launch of the manifesto, which was on the mainland, but many of the events I went to were on the island. Uh, it was Gerakandi, right? So they ran in 19 seats, and uh, Dominic Lau, the president of Gerakan, was very much the at the forefront. And so what they were doing there was actually focusing more on policy issues. So uh, in Penang, there are a couple of of uh, well known. Uh, big ticket infrastructural items. So one is the Penang South Island Reclamation Project, and then the other one is the LRT. So uh, when we see um, PN talking about it, and when you see uh, the messaging, and particularly the way uh, uh, Dominic Lau is speaking, he doesn't talk about Hadi Awang, right? He doesn't talk about PAS. He talks about, you know what, these infrastructure, so number one, uh, he was arguing that the Penang state government has been an incumbent for 15 years. Uh, they haven't kept up or haven't lived up to many of their promises. And in addition, you look at these two projects that are in the pipeline, they are very damaging. So uh, with the Penang, regards to the Penang South Island, um, there are a number of fishermen who are Malay that live in the South. There are about 1,200 whose livelihoods will be affected by this island. So he cast it in terms of, you know, this this island is not going to benefit local people. It's going to benefit uh, foreign direct investment, foreigners. Uh, what about livelihoods for local people? You're displacing people. You're going to affect, uh, you know, their rice bowl. So what are we going to do about this? Number one. Number two, when we look at the LRT, it is very expensive and it is only going to serve one part of the island and a more urban, wealthy island what about transport, public transport for people that are, you know, uh, economically hard up that need to travel large distances that are not reached by this? So can we not have or can we not think about a, a lower cost uh, alternative? Right. So, I mean, we, we can have a discussion on whether this is valid or not, but the point is it's differentiated. Right. They're looking at what's the ground and what messaging and what figures sell better for that audience. So again, when we come to Selangor and and other parts of the country, uh, it's often more Bursatu-led, right? When you're more in the urban and mixed areas and they talk less about PAS. 
Now, I want to ask, um, you know, when we look at the the states that Harapan BN have um, and the states that Perikata National has, the states that Harapan BN have are the ones on the higher median wage level compared to the, um, the, and the ones that Perikata National have are those on the lower median wage level. What does it mean to be a quote-unquote progressive party or progressive coalition? I mean, in the Malaysian context, you're talking about the Harapan and not have the support from the poorest or the, the, the working class people and so on and so forth. Because historically, when we look at it, that's what the progressive parties are supposed to be doing, right? When we look at the post-World War II era, when we look at the Cold War era, the progressive parties were the one standing with the poorest people in the communities, with the working class and so on and so forth. Help, what does it mean to be a progressive party in 2023 and not have any support or barely any support from some of the poorest people in the communities? So I think, I guess I'd say several things. The first is I think we need to unpack what the word progressive means, right? And you have progressive in a cultural and perhaps political sense. And here, I think in the Malaysian context, that means um, a little bit more open to cross-ethnic collaboration and issues. But then you also have an economically progressive uh, uh, idea, and this would determine or this would be sort of more to what extent you want to deal with things like economic redistribution and so on. And I think in Malaysia, but also in many other parts of the world, right, there is, uh, you know, these things are bundled together. Uh, but I think we need to unpack them and then kind of look at them more specifically. So if you will, uh, you look at the state government in Selangor, uh, it has quite a lot of economically progressive policies, right? Uh, different cash incentive schemes, rollout subsidies, these things that are targeted at B40 people. So this is economically progressive. Um, it is also, one could argue, because of course it is a PH government, it is politically and culturally progressive. But I think many people on the other side would perhaps look more at the political and the cultural aspect and will not necessarily unpack the economic aspect. Mm -hmm. So I think this is what makes it complicated. Absolutely. So I think this is a nice way to segue to the third force, um, mm -hmm. PSM Muda. All the candidates mm -hmm. lost all their deposits. Contextualize that for us before we dive deeper into it. Okay, so yes, give me a second while I contextualize this. Okay. So the first one is, I think, again, we go back to the structure of the parliamentary system and this issue of malapportion, right? So we have these 117 uh, Malay majority seats on the peninsula, right? And this is more than half of all the seats in the country, right? So this is very, very fertile electoral ground. And actually, if you will, this also explains why we're in the situation at the moment, because, you know, up until a little while ago, this was very much Umno's heartland. So over time, it had attrition from past, but it was very much contained in the north, right? What is new now is that we're seeing much more competition for these types of seats. Consequently, it's difficult to get the numbers to attain a majority parliament. So malapportionment is one. Then the second thing is 
Malaysia is now more than 70% urban, right? It's 72, 73%. But if you look at the way that we talk about politics, we think about it, it is still very rural. And again, this has to do with the malapportionment and the fact that you have a lot of less populated rural parliamentary seats. So what we've not seen is a kind of uh, transition of discourse that reflects where the majority of people in the country live, urban issues, urban discussions. But we also still have now very large urban seats, right? It's common to have an urban parliamentary seat of more than 100,000 people. So in these specific seats, then there is a recognition of a more diverse population, more diverse needs, and which is why when we see in parliamentary contests, when you have six, seven, eight contestants, these are always in the urban seats, right? Because you've got more people, more ideas, and you can kind of slice the cake differently. Mm -hmm. Then another thing that makes it more difficult is the first-past-the-post system. Because what this does is it takes a big shotgun and it blows away alternative voices. So just to give you an idea, in the March 2022 Johor state election, Barisan Nasional got 43% of the popular vote, Pakatan Harapan got 26.4%, Perikatan Nasional got 24% of the popular vote. Now, BN got 40 out of 56 state seats, almost two-thirds, right? So this magnifies the number of seats you get. Right. Uh, Pakatan Harapan got 13 seats, about what it got in population terms, and PN got three seats. That means that you run, you have an idea, maybe this appeals to lots of people, but dispersed across different parliamentary seats, you don't get anywhere. So this really has a dampening effect on alternative voices. Honing in on PSM, right? The country doesn't have... When we look at the two main blocks, Pakatan Harapan and Perikatan National, it doesn't have a very strong left-wing party. First of all, is it important to have a strong left-wing block that's focused on class struggle, building unions, wages, you know, solidarity among the working class, wealth redistribution? And if so... You know, if if it is important to have a block like that, what role does Party Socialist Malaysia play um, in this? Because they do seem to have the the admiration and respect among people who closely follow politics. You know, they get the media attention a little bit. Um, Activists seem to endorse them, so on and so forth. Um, But it doesn't necessarily translate at the electoral, um, uh, at the ballot box yet. Um, What role do you see like a party like Party Socialist Malaysia playing in the long run? So I think for all of the reasons that we've just discussed, the malapportionment, the prioritization of rural issues rather than urban issues, the the first-past-the-post system, it makes it very difficult. So when you are a political party and you are looking at your electoral strategy and you're looking at a parliamentary seat, and let's say it's two-thirds Malay majority, isn't it kind of a better investment to focus on these ethnic issues rather than something that is perhaps more diffuse. And as we were discussing earlier, that is still kind of not very well separated out. You know, the the issue of political, cultural, 
ideological issues and economic issues. Really, you know, there's been, I think, a lot written on it. And, and you know, we haven't seen this kind of class discussion uh, come out. Um, and, and I would say, yes, to a certain extent, it, it's, it is to its detriment, to the country's de detriment. Because also, I think, when we see a lot of the discourse, and I would say of both uh, ruling coalitions, a lot of it consists of handouts, right? That there's a handout, you know, yes, you've got this difficult issue, you've got a handout for this specific issue, but it's contingent on how much money you have. It, it, there is separate from any type of entitlement that you as a citizen are entitled to a certain standard of living, and it is the state that could be there to guarantee that, right? And then beyond that, of course, is up to you, but there's like a certain floor. This sort of discussion, I think, is very underdeveloped. What role, moving away, let's say, from PSM specifically, right? What role in your years of um, studying politics, um, observing various countries, what role does class struggle and class politics play in bridging polarization, especially like when we look at Malaysia, people are polarized across racial and religious lines. Can class politics play as a, as a role in bridging this? I don't know if I would use the word bridging, but there's something that Huang Chinwat, who you've spoken to, a very eminent political scientist, someone that I, I respect a lot, once said, and it stuck with me. He said, the problem with Malaysia is not that there are too many divisions, but that there are too few divisions. Right. So, you know, in a, any I would say anything that gives us a different way of cutting the cake, a different way of, of for people to relate to one another, I think is positive. So, uh, you know, actually, the fact that we are having now more separate state elections, I think, is useful and healthy and good. Right. So. And, and that is something I think that actually Johor does that is quite good, right? This, this idea of Bangsa Johor. And it is a, a state-based marker of identity that very specifically cuts across ethnic lines, right? You are born in Johor. You have an association with Johor. You are a Johorian, right? And this entails a number of things, supporting a soccer team, blah, 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 <laughs> right? But it's, it's, it's different. Right. So class... Or economic interests, I think, are also very key, very powerful, and would be necessary. And it would also enable us to kind of reframe certain things to do with affirmative action, for example. When we look at MUDA, um, because you know PSM and MUDA came and formed a pact. MUDA was first with Pakatan Harapan, then they decided to go alone. Um, MUDA also lost all their deposits. But again, I'm more interested in the long term, right? Because MUDA, unlike PSM, is not an ideological party. It is one that seems to say we are moderate progressive, which is pretty much what Pakatan Harapan says. Where does MUDA fit into the puzzle if that is the case? Should it take a more ideological approach to differentiate itself? Should it be more or, or put in more effort? to differentiate itself from Pakatan Harapan rather than saying we are a younger Pakatan Harapan? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I think the first thing is, uh, from my perspective, this yes. is my own opinion. Absolutely. I think that there is um, existential competition between Muda and PKR. Mm. And why is that? Uh, because they are both 
multi-ethnic but Malay-led political parties, right? And I also think, and, and I say this with respect, but perhaps also a certain amount of cheekiness, I think there are people in PKR that kind of don't realize that they've grown older, right? So they kind of still see themselves in 1998 and Reformasi, <laughs> and this was a while ago, right? So, you know, let's also give room to some younger people too, right? Absolutely. So I think that there is this type of competition between them, which is why you can see that the ne seat negotiations usually fall down between Muda and PKR, not between Muda and DAP and Amana. That's one. The second thing is, um, I think they are useful from a systemic perspective because, you know, we've been talking about progressive, right? And so uh, if, and here, very simplifying, we have Pericata Nacional more on the right, Barisan Nacional on the middle, and we have PH more on the left, then it is useful to have someone further on the left to kind of hold you to account and say, look, you know, you promised to do this. Why have you not done it? So on and so forth. So I think systemically it's useful. The, the issue, though, with Muda is exactly it doesn't chochok, it doesn't fit in the political system because it is youth focused, shall we say. And so the way it talks, the type of issues it talks about appeal largely to younger people and younger people in the parliamentary system are split up across all the different parliamentary constituencies. So maybe you've got 25% young voters in a given constituency, and maybe you even get 70% of these people voting for you. But your other parties that are cutting the cake differently because they're looking more at ethnic issues get a larger slice of the cake, and then you are second or more commonly third, and then you are going to be underrepresented. So if you were to take, of course, and the problem is here also, because they're younger, they're smaller, they don't have enough people to campaign in a large number of seats, then it's also difficult to kind of get an idea. But let's say, you know, they ran in every single seat and let's say they got 50% of the youth vote. Fantastic. But I don't think they'd win a single seat simply because of the way that the parliamentary system is structured. So unless we have a system that allows political parties that cross a certain threshold in terms of popular support to get an MP, this will be uh, very much the situation. Before we wrap our conversation up, um, Francis, I just want to get some final thoughts. Where does Malaysia go from here? Um, as, like you said, broadly speaking, um, this is the results of GE15 sort of um, reflected at the Dune level, of course, with with, change, with some changes and, and, and with Perikata National making even more gains. But broadly, that is what it is. Um, you know, we are a polarised country. We are a country polarised across racial and religious line, especially where do we go from here? Where does the government go from here? And also, aren't you just glad that elections are over and for the next four years, we can talk about the boring policy stuff? <laughs> Certainly. You know, you're tired. I'm tired. Uh, most of my colleagues are tired. Um, and actually, I think more importantly, I think the Malaysian people are tired. Absolutely. Right? I'm really, really tired. So um, I think probably the key thing coming out of this is that barring any black swan event, there's not going to be a change in government, right? So many people were saying more particularly if they lost Selangor, that then, you know, perhaps uh, certain uh, BNMPs would 
resign, call for by-elections, and then the whole you know house of cards would fall apart. Um, so I think that this has been put off, and now we have, I wouldn't say four years, because actually when you look at it, even though the maximum parliamentary term is five years, it's more often that you have election every four years, mm-hmm. but okay, let's see. Uh, so that, now we have a, a period where we can get to business, and there isn't this discourse, we have to wait till after the state election. So Absolutely. we've had the state elections. I think now the issue is to move forward, how to do it, how to do it quickly and generate or pick some low-hanging fruit. So I think this is key. Uh, things to look out for will be the upcoming budget. And then I would say, you know, any interesting big ticket uh, items coming out of the midterm review. Now, uh, many people think that the midterm review is is a long, boring document. It is, but it has important things. And actually, some of the midterm reviews are more important than the Malaysia plan. So if we go uh, to uh, Mahathir, of course, he became PM the first time in 1981. It was the midterm review because, of course, he was working with an existing Malaysia plan. It was the midterm review, the first one, where really you could get an idea of, of what he was thinking. So, you know, this could yield some insight as to to where to from here. And I think more than anything, really trying to add some granularity and approachability to Malaysia Madani in a way that that speaks to people. At the moment, it is still a little bit difficult to understand. Francis, thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure. Thanks so much. That was Francis Hutchinson, Senior Fellow of the Regional Economic Studies Program and Coordinator of the Malaysian Studies Program at ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.